This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello, and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden, and I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for The Pulse. How's it going, Miles? It's going good, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Got a couple interesting things to talk about today. We're going to vary up our topics a little bit, talk about art, talk about news, talk about education. Should be a pretty packed episode this week, so I'm excited to, to jump into it. Any uh, any anecdotal things before we, we get into the hard-hitting coverage, Miles? None. None at all. It is a, it is that kind of day. Then let's get into it. First off, why don't we just talk about a piece that Polly Fitz wrote about the cost of construction and the demand for materials. Uh, if you have been looking at doing any sort of you know housing projects or anything like that over the last year, you've probably run into this. I have kind of seen the the small availability of contractors and stuff like that just in my general looking around. But walk me through some of the stuff that Polly covered in her piece. Yeah, I mean... If you talk to, if, if anyone has like a casual conversation with somebody who's trying to build a house right now, I mean, it's always tough to get contractors and get people in to, to do the work. But right now, I think a lot of people are telling me that they're told nine months, a year out, sometimes longer for a big project. So, you know, some people come up here with the idea of I'm going to buy this vacant piece of land and I'm going to get this house going in, in a few months and I'm going to move in before the end of the year. And I, I think that's not happening for people right now. Right. And it's a combination of things together, right? So it's uh, a higher demand. Of, you've got people, you know, stuck at home and thinking like, oh, man, now that I have to look at this problem all day, probably should get it fixed or probably should expand or want to go move. You've got all of those things that compounded last year. But then there's also cost of materials and stuff like that, too. Walk me through some of the different reasons why we're in the situation that we're in. Yeah, I mean, anybody who's tried to do anything has seen the cost of lumber skyrocket and all sorts of materials. You know, a couple of years ago, it was steel when there was a kind of a spike in steel prices. But right now you have, I, I just do amateur projects around the house, very small scale things that can't hurt my house, you know, with plywood. And a few months ago, I, I just called Lamperts and ordered some plywood. And that guy said before I finalized it, he's just so you know, that's uh, going to be like $68 right now. And my jaw hit the floor because normally that sheet of plywood is $40, maybe less depending on the time of year. So at that point, things had crept up close to double the price of normal. And the same thing goes for any building materials, two by fours, things like that. So costs for just basic materials are a lot higher than they've ever been. It's one reason you see people looking to salvage homes now and move homes off of properties like you've seen at Patricia shop, or uh, I think there's going to be demand for the the home that Liberty Grove is selling on the Gills Rock shoreline for people who just want to move the old home and work with the bones of that versus trying to build new. Then you have just this influx of new home starts. The home starts the last couple of years have skyrocketed in Door County. Just drive around the back roads. I mean, there were times when it was a big deal if one thing was under construction or one development was being proposed for most of the last 20 years. But Deb Fitzgerald and I talk about it all the time. We're like, man, it just seems like every time you cover one proposed development, there's another one and another construction project underway. And just driving around Sister Bay, you see homes, condominiums, things like that going up. So it's just harder to find those contractors. A lot of the, them are bringing in workers from the Green Bay Fox Valley area. So it's just harder to find people who can build. I think Vans Lumber told um, our reporter Polly Fitz that 
they have 83 projects in their pipeline right now, which is the most by far that they've ever had. Yeah, I remember even anecdotally earlier this year, I was starting to maybe shop around and have some people come look at a shed that I have on the property because I'd like to finish it and turn it into an office. And I was asking around like, hey, do you know anybody who might be able to come out and maybe give me an estimate or just see what I would need to do to get this thing going? And people were like, nope, pretty much booked up. Probably not going to see anybody until middle of summer. If that, if you get an you know, get a hold of them now. So even I've seen it just on small scale things as well. Yeah. I mean, I remember being around and I was a roommate with a carpenter back during the, the great recession in the 08, 09 years. And at that time, people who worked for major firms, those major firms that would normally never take anything less than a big house project were then taking small remodeling jobs just to keep people employed and keep the cash flow coming in. Now it's definitely back to a level that I haven't seen in my adult life of a time when certain builders won't even look at a small remodeling project or even a small home. And that's one of the reasons you don't see much affordable housing being built. Even though there's some money in it, if somebody's going, hmm, I can do this larger project and make, let's say 50 grand in profit, or I can do this smaller one and maybe get five or 10, you just anybody is going to pick the 50. So some people, you know, come down on builders and developers for not doing the affordable stuff. But like, if you were in the same position, everybody would take the, as a business person, would take the project that brings in more revenue. Right. Well, the the demand thing is definitely contributed to by COVID, but is there is there also like a COVID bottleneck with any of this? Like I know, for instance, the tech industry is totally bottlenecked right now with the chip shortage. Cars are sitting on lots, not able to go out because they don't have the chips that they need. Is this a, a similar bottleneck in that way or does it have to do with just the demand? I can't vouch for being a, an expert on this, but what I've been told is that there is a little bit of a backup in just lumber supply. A lot of things when COVID first hit, the real estate agents I talked to at the time did not expect real estate to just boom. They thought, okay, this is killing the economy. This is going to crush people's pocketbooks. It's probably not going to be great for real estate because people aren't going to look for second homes. People weren't anticipating, especially rural America, just the degree to which people were going to flee the cities and flee for especially high demand places like Door County. About a month or two into COVID, I, I remember Kevin Nordahl, a real estate agent with True North sent me an email and he said, hey, you might want to look into this, but there is a huge uptick in demand for vacant lots. And he said to a degree I've never seen before. And we did a story on that back then. It's just so many of these um, consequences of the COVID lockdown and stuff was people just looking for a vacant lot, thinking they were just going to park a camper on it or slowly build a home. And that has also driven up this demand. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a one-two punch in that when you have people at home you see a lot of different industries get increased demand all of a sudden, but then they're also being hampered by like factory shortages as well. So not only do you have more people than ever wanting a certain thing, but you also have less supply of that thing than ever before. So it was, it was pretty wild if you were trying to do any sort of like hobby remodeling or, you know, trying to start your own home gym or anything like that. All that equipment was bought yeah. up immediately. All the things that people turn to right away of being like, I'm going to be at home this whole summer. I need something to do. I'm going to dig back into my old hobbies or something like that and bought everything up immediately. And then factory shut down and they're like, okay, well not only is everything sold out, but nothing's coming back. Yeah. They weren't bringing while. the product back online and there's no way that a lumber yard or anybody in that industry was going to go, okay, COVID's here. The economy's crushed. Let's ramp up supply. I think there's going to be big demand for all of this. Right. So even if they, you know, a month or so into it, you started to see that it wasn't killing the real estate industry. Well, a, a month or two month lag time puts you behind. And if that demand doesn't slow 
and it hasn't, then it's just hard to catch up. You know, I'm talking about the vacant lot sales in uh, Polly's story. One of the things that she mentions is 2019, there were 214 vacant land sales in Door County. 2020, there were 293. So almost a full third more vacant land sales. And so far in, through May of this year, early May of this year, you were at 104. So it's still going. People are still trying to snap up that land. Yeah, well, it's land and it's real estate too. I mean, the housing market right now is is wild and was all last year. But I mean, there's contributing factors that from outside of that too, because while like Door County might be in a housing bubble in terms of how high prices are for housing right now, you're seeing that across the board in different markets as well. I know everywhere yeah. that I'm seeing people trying to buy or sell houses, it's the same thing. But I, I'd be interested to see maybe if there's a percentage difference here, because like you said, it's a desirable place to kind of get away compared to, you know, in your Minneapolis suburbs or something. Hmm. Yeah, it'd be a good question. Right. Anything else on this piece before we move on? Uh, that's it. All right. <laughs> that's all I got. Yeah, it's it's something I'm sure that we'll continue to look at throughout the next year or two is just all of these little COVID-related eccentricities that popped up. Yeah, I mean, in this article, Polly talked to several different builders, several different uh, people trying to build homes. And it's an interesting article. It's an interesting look at the landscape now. And I think there's probably going to be a lot more articles similar to that in the, the months to come. Right. So another piece that I want to pivot to is uh, theater. And I, I had written about live theater coming back, I believe in last week's paper. Uh, but I got to see my first show of the season, which was great. Right. Where'd you uh, go? I went to my bedroom and opened up my laptop and I watched a virtual show. Oh, <laughs> it was great. Uh, it was Northern Sky's production of Not Even Remotely. And the, the cool thing about this is it was written to be performed both virtually on like YouTube Live, okay. but then also to be performed in person on a stage. And it will be actually remounted at Northern Sky later this summer. So if you had a chance to see it, it was, a, I think, like a three-day run or four-day run. It was a pretty short run, but you could watch it online. And the cool thing about it was it was actually performed live. So it wasn't a video on demand. It wasn't okay. just a link that lived at all times. You actually had to log in at 7 o'clock and watch the show start. And every single night was different because they actually performed it live Okay, in that way. So taking another step towards that live theater experience, right? Um, we, we talked a lot last year about the spectrum from theater to film and what makes something theater and what makes it film. And this is more akin to film because it's filmed and you're watching it through a screen, but it also does have the live element to it, right? Mm -hmm. In a way that maybe makes it like live TV. You know, if, if you want to talk about like a, a sporting event, is that, you know, if you watch that on TV, is it different from the experience of being there? And, and yes, it is, but it's closer than if you were watching a movie about sports. Okay, right? sure. So that's kind of the analogy that I think of. Uh, but it will be really interesting to see it performed live because it was a show about doing a virtual show. So it's about a fictional company that wants to mount a lavish musical rendition of Frankenstein. And then at the last minute, COVID hits, they're not able to do it. But in order to keep their grant money, they have to do a live performance. And so they do it online. <laughs> that's written into the script. Uh, so you've got these two actors who are performing the whole thing and they're constantly stopping to explain what the scene is and what it looks like. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, in this scene, actually, he would come in wearing this elaborate costume and then there'd be this, you know, we'd have this set design and it would move and there'd be a whole thing that like they're describing it to you comedically. And you're just supposed to be like, oh, man, 
imagine if I had seen this live. It's the kind of thing where it's like, oh yeah, no, it, we would have had elephants on stage, but we couldn't do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's that sort of humor. So I'll be really interested to see it mounted at the Gold Theater. So you keep saying the word mounted, by the way. Yeah. And remounted. Is this an old theater term? Because I'm a theater moron, but, and I know what you mean. I, I assume that means like, basically means putting on the show. Yeah, putting it on. Is that like a new term? Thing. Is that something they've always used? It's an older term for okay. sure. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I maybe I'm just old fashioned, but that's how I would refer to it, right? right. You know, I, I am probably just very much stupid <laughs> when it comes to theater. So I, I just, I, I assume I understand what you're saying with it, but I'd never, I'd never heard of it. And I honestly just never covered theater that closely. So. No, it's a good clarification to make because I'm sure there are other people wondering what I meant by saying that. But yes, the show will be put on again <laughs> at the Gould Theater. And I think it will be really interesting to see if it's different at all, if the script changes or anything like that. But more interestingly, just the experience of seeing a show about performing remotely in person. What will that actually feel like? Yeah, we're probably in for like a year of comedy about people adjusting to making that switch back to real performances and right. getting used to that, that life of the virtual performance. Oh, yeah. That's going to be the next five years of pop culture as I yeah. oh, remember the pandemic. And it's, yeah. yeah, it's going to be tongue in cheek. Who um, um, has there been live performances yet that someone can go and sit and see in person? There has not been, well, there's been, uh, Rogue Theater's done their drive-in okay. stuff. But if you're talking about like equity theaters. More like traditional, what people expect of Penn Players or Northern Sky or anything like that. Right. The first in-person show will actually be on Monday. Okay. So. Who's doing that? Northern Sky. All right. Uh, they actually put these shows pretty much back to back and they are opening up their production of The Fisherman's Daughters, which is a new musical that was written by Katie Dahl. And they are doing basically an extended preview and that that's kind of what they called it in their in their marketing for it if you are familiar with theater companies maybe in like the twin cities or in chicago you might be familiar with like a workshopping period or even like a previews week but this would be different than that in that it is a show that's going to have reduced sets costumes props those types of things and the show that they actually end up putting on next year, the finished version of it, you know, may have the music tweaked, may have the script tweaked, those types of things. But what we're seeing on Monday will basically be uh, an enhanced preview of this show that will be, you know, fully realized next year. Like I said, if you're familiar with this type of thing, it's actually a cool opportunity to go see a show being workshopped. You know what I mean? So, we should do an edition of The Pulse that's just workshopping it, like unfinished articles, half-baked ideas, and we just put it out and not really factual. Okay, I shouldn't have even said this because I'm sure a lot of our listeners are like, isn't that what you do every week? Right, yeah, just uh, uh, okay. Yeah, the placeholder on. ads. <laughs> just do all. Yeah, I think that that would be a great way for people to see. But like I said, this is something that uh, theater goers maybe in the cities might be more used to is seeing a workshopped production. Okay. And I think that it, it's going to be really cool if you've seen Katie Dahl perform or if you've seen um, her previous shows at Northern Sky, then should be exciting to see her next one. By the way, props to Katie Dahl. I know she's done, she's written at least one other play and like a lot of people say, oh, I'd like to write a play or I'd like to write a book or I'd like to write even a column. And so few people actually bring that to fruition and put themselves out there and, and have the dedication to finish it and kind of learn the craft. So for her to do this a second time, at least two that I know of, you can take it for granted, but it's really hard to do that. I am right. one of those people who said, yeah, I'm going to write a book someday. I'm 42. I know we're close to writing a book, you know, and, uh, and I write all the time. It's hard to do this stuff. Jacinda Duffin is another one who, who wrote a, a play once. And the other thing is Katie and Jacinda are both 
former contributors at one point or another to the Pulse in Door County Living. So way to go, Door County Living. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I'm glad you brought that up too, because all types of writing are different, right? Mm-hmm. Journalism is different from nonfiction writing, is different from fiction writing, is different from playwriting. Script writing is really hard. Yeah. It's a I mean, totally different way to approach what you're trying to get across than what I do day to day. Yeah. Well, think of it this way. You wrote an intro a couple of weeks ago that started with a conversation, right? Had dialogue going back and forth. Now imagine doing that for 150 pages. That's what playwriting is. Yeah. Cause it's all dialogue. And you know what it is? It's freaking impossible. <laughs> I can't, like writing dialogue is amazing. Yeah. I mean, when you and think it's about like dialogue that actually sounds real. Yeah. Well, think about the difference even between playwriting and screenwriting, right? Screenwriting, you have the ability to write what the scene is and what people do and describe the actions that you don't necessarily have to the same freedom in playwriting because you're not going to be able to drive a car through the scene. You're not going to be able to have a shootout. You're not going to be able to do those things on stage. So everything, all of your narration, your, your narrative storytelling has to come through the dialogue. So... Props to to anybody who can write write plays. They're an interesting form of writing, and they're they're not easy to do, especially to like you said, make it sound realistic. But mm-hmm. uh, it's a cool art form. Finally, so there's a couple different topics to talk about. All that kind of coalesce in Gibraltar, like the town of Gibraltar, and also Gibraltar School. Yes, the first one is the lawsuit with Alibi Doc that the town of Gibraltar is having, not the school. Yeah, and I'm guessing a lot of tourists hear us talk about Gibraltar, and they and they say. What the heck are you talking about? Yeah, where's Gibraltar? Yeah, and which is what I was doing when I was 15. You're like, Even though I went to Gibraltar school, drove through that town all the time, it was Fish Creek. Yeah, and I feel like I've been everywhere except for Gibraltar and Liberty Grove. I don't yeah. know what towns those <laughs> they are. They do not exist. So anyway, town of Gibraltar is, as our listeners might remember, they um, were embroiled in a lawsuit with White Cottage Red Door over food trucks two years ago. Um, now they are stuck in a lawsuit with another village business, this time the Alibi Marina, which is the main marina in the village of Fish Creek, which is in the town of Gibraltar, which Fish Creek isn't really a village. Anyway, that gets confusing. But the the whole thing centers around like there's a town dock and then there's the Alibi dock. And the town dock is where if they're familiar with the Quo Vadis tour boat and boat rentals, that uses rent space on the town dock and operates out of there. Alibi has a pier about 30 feet away from that dock. And the town of Gibraltar is suing them to basically, I'm, I'm going to try and take this kind of complicated lawsuit and make it as simple as it sounds. So there's an east side of the Alibi dock where they dock larger transient boats on that side of the pier. The town says that that impedes their use of their dock further east. And they say it's because Alibi was allowed to build that pier when they shouldn't have been allowed to build that pier because it's too close to the town dock. But on the flip side, this pier has been there for 25 years and it was properly permitted. Well, it was permitted by the DNR. The town saying it was improperly permitted, but the DNR issued the permit for them to build it where they built it. And what the town is trying to do is, A, their number one solution is to have that pier removed and maybe moved farther away, or B, prohibit the Alibi Marina from docking boats, transient boats on the town dock side of their pier. Does that make sense at all? (laughs) Yes. One clarification that I want to make is I know where the Alibi dock is. Is the town dock close to Malibu Moose? Yes. Okay. All right. Not not super close, but it's, it's around 
Clark Park there. All right. So I, I feel like I have the distinction here. Why is this coming up now? Like you said, Alibi Dock's been there for 20 years. Is it something that the town is starting to use that area more or, or what happened? Well, this being a lawsuit, not much was given to me in forms of comment. So town chair Steve Soans only said that that has been an issue with the town for several years and it's now coming to a head. He did say the town has tried to settle this without going to court, but that has been unsuccessful. He wouldn't confirm exactly what has been tried to do in that case. Um, I spoke to the owner of the Alibi Marina, as you would expect, also not offering comment on the case. I talked to some of the boat rental companies and other town businesses, also refused to comment and Basically, it sounds like everybody is saying, I don't want any part of this lawsuit. Like there's the two principles and nobody else wants to be pulled into this mess. It's never fun when a municipality has to sue one of its own business owners. I did talk to Bill Wedig, who had given a comment to the town board at one point, basically saying, hey, town, you, you owe the public and your voters an explanation why you're suing a local business owner and over something that has been there for 25 years that doesn't seem to be that big of an issue to at least to Bill Wedding's mind. And then he said, this is also a business that brings in revenue, transient boaters. They don't bring cars. They're bringing their boat. So they're not adding to the parking problem. They get off their boat. They buy services. They go to bars. They go to the Bayside. They spend money in town. Why do we want to create a problem with this business that's good for everybody? It, that's Bill Wedding's comments in a nutshell. Seems pretty valid, right? But then again, if it really is causing issues for the rental operations at the Tau Dock, and if it's squeezing into their riparian zone, um, which basically means their their water rights to an extent, and actually at, at least their rights to the land that abuts the water, yeah, I can see the town having an issue with that. But it is really weird that these two piers have both existed for at least 25 years. So right. this is not a new thing. So for it suddenly to come to a head, that's probably the thing, like you mentioned, that, that seems so weird about it. Yeah, if there was, if there was something that that made that make sense. Like if the town was expanding something or starting to use that for something now, the other question that I have is, and, and maybe, maybe you don't know, but like what other options are there outside of a lawsuit for something like this? Well, it does seem like if it, well, the alibi contends that their boats do not cause an issue. Now I rented a pontoon boat a couple of weeks ago out of sister Bay. And if there were other boats tight, in my space there as a pontoon boat driver, I am not a professional boat driver. I am your layman rental boat driver. I would not want to drive in a trafficked, tight squeezed area as a rental operator. Yeah, I can't believe they let us just get on boats. Do you need it a is driver's weird, license? Yeah. Yes. Okay, but that they don't like translate. They're not the same thing. Exactly. No. And they just like, oh, you got to drive it. All right, get on the boat. It's, I don't understand how <laughs> they let us do that without a class. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. That being said, still, let me rent the boat that I have reserved later this summer. So I can see when I look, went down to that pier, and there was, the day I went down there, there was a rather large transient boat docked on Pier 4, and then there were the pontoon boats at the town dock. And it does look pretty tight. Yeah, they and they were just smashed up against the dock. They, <laughs> it, and, the, like, no, there was, I, I don't want to, there was nothing untoward when I saw this, but I'm sitting there going, well, if I rented that pontoon, there is space there. And if I were... Like a good boat driver can easily maneuver yeah. in that and situation. You're a, you're a good boat driver. Let's just clarify because I know you have a rental pending. I am allowed to rent a boat. Okay. <laughs> so I looked at that and I'm like, oh, if that were a little closer, if that's a little tighter and there's another boat coming like that, I'd be like, hey, can you drive me out to open water? And then apparently swim back to shore and rent your other boat. Yeah. So, Which is a service they provide. I can see that being an issue, but 
I don't know how it operates and what it looks like in the summer. And nobody would tell me, and nobody told me there was an issue. I, I did anybody I contacted, even off the record, nobody said there are problems down there. So, and the alibi contends that there are no reports of problems and that there, that this is only the town saying this and not the actual operators. So that's where that sits. So maybe they'll come to a solution. But that being said, you would think the solution would be either they aren't allowed to dock boats on that side of the pier, or there are a certain amount of space that is off limits for docking so that boats can go in and out. But it does seem, given how strict some of the waterways are regulated and piers are regulated, that even as late as the late 90s, it was it seems like it was uh, not as tight from the DNR's perspective. All right, let's shift away from the town of Gibraltar to the school of Gibraltar. <laughs> and we've got two pieces to, to kind of talk about real quick here. The first one is that Gibraltar is looking at potentially moving towards a 4K style situation, right? So starting their kindergarten at four years old, yes. right? We'll, we'll get into some of the, the different reasons for this and, and what implications they have as well. But, but walk me through just the basics of what a move like this would mean for Gibraltar. Well, so by doing 4K, four-year-old kindergarten, it, for parents, it means, hey, if I got a four-year-old, now I can send them to the school. That relieves me of some childcare burden, right? And for the school, it means we have taxing authority for that many more students. So if we have an entire new class of, say, 40 new four-year-olds that are going to come to us for 4K, well, now those are 40 more pupils we can tax based on. So it brings them more revenue into the same facility. They don't have to build anything new. The issue then becomes, and, and other schools do this, every other school district in the county already offers that. But when you offer that, you really put the brakes on your local child care center. So if the Gibraltar offers 4K, that takes all those four-year-olds out of the Northern Door Children's Center or Peninsula Preschool and those four-year-olds are basically the only profit sector in childcare. Right. That's the thing that I wanted to get into. So when the Sturgeon Bay Daycare Center closed and then reopened, we had talked about how thin the margins are for childcare anyway. And like what makes childcare possible in a lot of ways is that four-year-old bracket because yep. there are regulations based on class sizes and so you have to hire a certain number of teachers per a certain number of students. And that number greatly expands at four years old. So by being able to have less teachers for four-year-olds than you would need for three-year-olds, two-year-olds, so on and so forth, that's where they're able to actually make that money. And without that four-year-old demographic in the school, it becomes a lot harder to take care of the three, the two, the one-year-olds. Correct. Right. I think it's a four-to-one ratio for one and two-year-olds. It's it goes up to, I think, a 12 or a 13 to 1 ratio student to teacher once you get to the four-year-olds. So you greatly reduce costs. And, you know, just like a lot of people pick up the pulse for the arts and entertainment, the advertising that supports that helps us to provide the news gathering component of our paper versus it's not like people, there are some who like to advertise in the news, but it's really about being around the entertainment and the things to do and getting the tourists to pick it up. But that allows us to provide the news. Just right. like four-year-old kindergarten allows a daycare center to provide for the one, two, and three-year-olds. In Sturgeon Bay, this is the big reason why the Y got out of the business and shut down their daycare center because it took away the highest revenue portion. And now that's the fear for Northern Door Children's Center. And interestingly, our reporter Craig Starrett talked to Gibraltar Board President Steve Cipher about this, and he said, well, it's a no-brainer. Why wouldn't we do 4K? 
But that's a little disingenuous because Steve Seifer knows why it's not a no-brainer. And he was superintendent the last time this came up years ago. So Gibraltar is well aware of the impact this could have on a place like Northern Door Children's Center if they go that route. Right. Another analogy just to kind of to bump up the one that you said about the advertising and how that makes everything work. One conversation that I remember hearing people have my freshman year of college is why do I have to pay for, I'm a theater student, why do I have to pay for the athletic complex? Why does that come out of my tuition? I don't use it at all. Well, because if you only paid for the things that you use, everything would fall apart, right? Without Mm -hmm. the added revenue of the people who are there for sports paying tuition, we wouldn't have a theater. And vice versa. It takes all of us together to support that sports facility. It's the same thing here. If you don't have everybody contributing to the economic situation here, then it all kind of falls apart for everybody. Yeah. And we're going to have a couple of the representatives from childcare on a podcast uh, next week to talk about this in much greater depth and with much greater knowledge than, than you or I have at the tip of our fingers. But one thing you and I do have is a young child. And right now, not together, we have two young children (laughs) apart (laughs) separately with our wives. Yeah. Um, But we have right now, one-year-olds, we have a daycare provider. And yes, if they were suddenly four-year-olds, which they will one day be, it would be great to have not have the childcare payment and send them to 4k at the school and be, oh, great. Now we don't have to expend so much on, on childcare. Right. But that's only if you, if you sit in your silo as a parent of a four-year-old and then, well, oh, wait, what if I now don't have daycare? for my other one-year-old, you know, so. Well, there's that, and then there's also the the seasonality of it, too, right? They don't go to kindergarten all year long. That's a good point, too. I so, and, and I'm pretty, I don't know how it works at Gibraltar, but at least when I was in kindergarten, I was only there a couple days a week. Hmm. You know what I mean? So it, that's the other thing, too. If you're like, okay, great, now I don't have to pay for childcare, move my four-year-old in here, that's only a partial solution. And if childcare facilities aren't able to make ends meet and they have to go away, you don't have that backup to be like, oh, well, he'll go to kindergarten these two days, daycare these two days, and then daycare in the winter, right? Those are the questions that you have to ask. What makes the most sense? Yeah, there's just like everything. I mean, you look at it on the surface like, yeah, 4K, that'd be great. Why wouldn't we do that? But there's always these ripple effects in, in any scenario, like the COVID ripple effects, the 4K ripple effects. They, they, it's very hard to look at most of these issues in a very simple lens. Right. Well, like you said, we'll talk more about this next week. One last thing I wanted to cover today before we wrap up. Uh, we're going to stay at Gibraltar High School. And tell me about the, the situation going on with the admins over there. There have been three that have resigned in a pretty short order. Uh, walk me through this story. That's not specific to the Gibraltar area school district, the entire K through 12. Um, ripple effect. Again, <laughs> everything has layers. I mean, yeah, in terms of offering 4K kindergarten, it seems Gibraltar has bigger fish to fry at the moment with uh, three super three administrative staff have left. Brian Annan, their elementary principal, Tim Mulrain, and then Gary and Methner have all resigned in recent weeks, probably in the last five weeks, which is tough for a number of reasons. One, obviously you're losing a lot of the high-end staff, but you're losing them at a time of year that isn't part of the normal hiring cycle for a school. So now you're looking at replacing those people or figuring out a reorganization just six to eight weeks before the next school year begins. Right. Well, and then there's the question of coincidence or shared cause, right? Is Did they just happen to all resign at the same time? And it's unfortunate that it all worked out that way. Or is there a, an underlying issue to examine? Yeah. And that's what Gibraltar is starting to get into. Um, Over the last couple months, they have started to look at the issues with employee turnover. And as they're looking at that, they have more employee turnover. Gibraltar employs 106 people. 
as of the most recent count I have hanging by my desk of the top 10 employers in the county, I think Gibraltar's number nine or 10. Over the last three or four years, you're looking at roughly 20% of their staff leaving. Now, some of that is retirement. Some of it is younger teachers leaving, which is the big thing you don't want to lose in an educational institution because you invest your um, time and efforts up front while they're in their 20s. You train them, you indoctrinate them into your culture, or they change your culture for the better. And then you get the next 20 to 30 years of them um, giving back to your community and giving back to your school. When you lose them, that's a huge loss because maybe you've invested two, three, six, seven, eight years in those people. And now they're entering their prime teaching or administrating years and somebody else is getting the benefit. It's just like if uh, going back to a sports team, you know, you train someone, they have one good year and then they go off and sign with somebody else. It's like, oh man, we, we did the three years of training and then right. now you reap rewards. Same thing kind of applies in a school. Yeah. Is there, is there an inkling at this point, you know, what is happening or is that still to be uncovered? I would say from what people have told me off the record, there has been disenchantment amongst a lot of teachers there for several years. I don't know if that applies to these administrators. I know some of them might've just made lifestyle changes because as you grow and, and I know for a fact, Tim Mulrain is got a young family may just want to be, be closer to his family, to, to his own family, have more daycare resources, childcare resources, um, be closer to home. That would totally make sense. But for all three of these to happen at the same time, that's where it begs even more questions. Yeah, that's the thing, because it's either an unfortunate coincidence or there's a pattern. And that's the thing to kind of suss out. Yeah, and our, our reporter, Craig Sterrett, is looking into that. How does Gibraltar's turnover rate compare to other schools? not just to Gibraltar history, but other schools in our district or other schools in Door County and other schools around the state. And then is this kind of administrative turnover a blip or is this a trend? I mean, Gibraltar historically has had a little less turnover than some of the other schools. That's my anecdotal recollection, but we'll see in the coming weeks as we flesh this, these details out a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, I think the most interesting thing about this story to me is that there's turnover at all because I didn't think teachers could leave the school. I thought they had to live there, <laughs> but maybe that's just me going back to my, my school days. That's what I thought growing up. Right. Well, Miles, with that, uh, why don't we wrap it up here? Uh, lots of interesting things to think about and to consider in the next couple of weeks. Um, if you listen to our podcast on Wednesday, or if you haven't listened to it, check it out. Me and Dave go over some of the events that are coming up this weekend, including the Lighthouse Festival, the Steelbridge Song Festival, the Dorkinetic Arts Festival. So lots of things to do. When you're done listening to this episode, check that one out. And we will see you uh, out in the county this weekend. Miles, thank you for chatting with me. And I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.